While they're doing that, let me encourage you to uh, get out a Bible if you brought one and open to uh, John chapter 4. We're going to continue a message that Jason had started last week. Um, If you missed that one, I encourage you to go and uh, listen to that on the podcast. And we'll continue there. Would you pray with me please as we prepare our minds and hearts? And I'm going to pray aloud here in just a second. But if you would pray silently just right where you are. Would you ask the God who spoke the universe into existence. Would you ask him to speak to you today? Father God, thank you for your grace and your mercy so rich. As we sang today, just your goodness so evident in our life in so many ways. Many of us live such hurried lives that we forget just how integral your involvement in our life is. Thank you for that. Thank you for your love as expressed through Jesus. And I pray today as we encounter um, the Holy Scriptures, I pray that they read us more than we read it. And Father, they would produce a change in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You know those, those things that you heard your mom and dad, maybe your grandparents, like the little life lessons that you heard from them all the time. Normally they were the ones that, you know, they got repeated multiple times in multiple places. I remember some of those things that my dad taught me that I'm sure his dad taught him, little sayings that he would say uh, all the time. One of the things he would say is you, uh, you can't work with your hands in your pants. And he meant pockets. Um, but any time that we would, and he basically his point was, you know, quit staring at me and help me do whatever this is. You know, you can't work with your hands in your pants. He used to say uh, when I was complaining something wasn't happening quick enough, he would say, you know, Luke David didn't become king overnight. And the lesson was there was 15 years between the anointing of David and him actually becoming king. And, you know, I guess the point was be patient And what God is doing. Another thing he used to say all the time was the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And you may have heard that before. I think we heard it. We were in a U-Haul truck. Uh, Dad and I, I think we were listening to Paul Harvey. I think that's where we heard it. Um, But, uh, and we were in a lot of U-Haul trucks. So I don't remember which trip this was. But uh, one of those trips. And then my dad elaborated for the next several hours on the the potency of that very statement, the main thing to keep the main thing, the main thing. And uh, that's what I thought about when I looked at the text today. It's a great thing for us to remember. Jesus is going to tell us that the main thing is the harvest. The main thing's the harvest. And we'll get to that here in a minute. If you remember last week, Jason introduced this uh, story to us. There's so much loaded in this text. We talked about doing uh, a multiple, you know, maybe an eight-week sermon series just on this one text. There's so much loaded in here. We're not going to get to all of it. We are going to look at it today and I think a little bit next week. But um, I would encourage you to read and meditate on this passage. Not just read it once, but read it multiple times and ask the Holy Spirit to really reveal as God's word is living 
And as we read it and the Holy Spirit begins to show us things, even about our own selves and about the nature of God, and I encourage you to, uh, to dig deep into that. But if we back up a little further than just last week and we back up uh, really to almost the beginning of the series, we see this current theme going on. John, the author John, John the evangelist or John the beloved, is trying to introduce Jesus to us. He says in uh, chapter 21, I've written these things so that you may believe in Jesus Christ. So this is his, he's, he's not trying to uh, bait and switch anyone. He says, listen, I want you to encounter God through Jesus. And so that's, so he, he kind of puts his cards on the table. And then in chapter uh, two, we saw the wedding at Cana followed by the cleansing of the temple. And the real, the real lesson there is that religious people need Jesus. Religious people need Jesus. Jesus goes into the temple, turns over the tables, all of the things that they were loving money and the ritual of their religious activities more than they were gathering to seek the presence of God. And Jesus made quite a showing there. Religious people need Jesus. And then Jesus had this encounter with Nicodemus. You remember the encounter with Nicodemus, the, the, this, one of the spiritual leaders of the day. He was a teacher of the law, super successful and we learn that successful people need Jesus. Just because that you've reached the top of whatever ladder you're climbing doesn't <clears throat> mean that you don't still need Jesus in an incredible way. And Jesus had this conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3. I encourage you to check that out if you don't remember, not familiar with it. And then last week we see Jesus with this woman at the well. And the point really of this text is that broken people need Jesus and if the point somehow blows past you the point John's trying to make is everybody needs Jesus successful people and broken people and poor people and rich people everybody needs Jesus just a quick recap of uh, the message um, from last week uh, John chapter 4 Jesus meets this woman at the well He's leaving Judea, departing for Galilee. Most good Jews would take the six-day trek around Samaria. It's three days if you go through Samaria, six days to go around it. The Jews hated the Samaritans so much that they, they, would, they would add, you know, half of a week to their journey just not to encounter the Samaritan people, but not Jesus. He goes straight through there. He meets this woman who's at the well, getting water in the middle of the day, the heat of the day. This woman has a messy pass, certainly. She's had five husbands. She's now living with a man who wasn't her husband. She was a social outcast, culturally blacklisted, seemed to focus on finding the real secret to worship and her and Jesus have this dialogue and then Jesus offers her living water. For a woman who was looking to men for validity and satisfaction and identity, Jesus announces that she'll never find that in anything but Jesus. Sin will tell you one of two things. Either you're fine and there's no consequences or you're stuck and there's no hope. Either you're fine and there's no consequences. We're just going to keep living our life the way we want to live our life, however we want to live it. You're fine and there's no consequences. I mean, God hasn't struck me down yet, so I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Or you're stuck and there's no hope. 
And it seems like this lady was stuck in the ladder of those, that I'm stuck here. There's no hope. And then Jesus introduces this living water. After all of this, the disciples come back, probably had passed a woman on the way into town, knowing that she's probably trouble. They would have walked on the other side and not even looked at her once they could tell that she was a woman. And then they get back to the well and the scripture that uh, Ellie read for us earlier, they find Jesus talking to this woman. I love this too in verse 23 before this happens in his dialogue, this verse and Jason mentioned last week, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship in the Father in spirit and truth. The father is not necessarily seeking worship. He's seeking worshipers. It's not just the act of worship. It's not just the act of us gathering, not just the act of us singing, not just the act of us even obeying. He's looking for worshipers, those that worship from a pure heart, that go after him, not the external activity, but the inward reality that our hearts find their greatest joy in Jesus. So we'll jump back in in verse 27. The disciples come back from town. They remember they went to get food. They marveled. He was talking with a woman, but no one said, and they've learned something. You, you don't question Jesus. No one said, uh, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, went away in the town. I love to just, this had to be a personal account of John, him seeing there. She left the water jar. I love that that's included. Come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. We went into town and got this food, man, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Uber Eats of the day, I guess. Somebody just show up with um, some Chick-fil-A for Jesus. So the disciples said, uh, if anyone brought him something to eat, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes a harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you didn't labor. For others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did, she says. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is God's word. After all of this, the disciples come back, probably passing the woman again, and they were astonished to see that Jesus was actually talking to her. I got just three quick points that I want to make emphasis on in this text. And again, there's so many more that we could really look at. The first is this, is what matters most is the harvest. What matters most is the harvest. 
Jesus tells them, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. I think the NIV says, open your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. You ever talk to a farmer and make the mistake of asking them about the harvest? I was talking to Heather Deloach yesterday. Her dad's a farmer. Most farmers I know are super quiet. And they don't really want to talk about much. But if you ask them about the harvest, you better get ready to to be prepared for a three-hour answer. Because they know about the harvest. And they're going to tell you everything about the harvest. They're going to tell you everything about the acidity in the soil and the weather patterns and the insects that are bothering them and the exchange rate for whatever they're selling. Uh, they're They're going to talk about it all. Because they know about the harvest. Because for a farmer, the harvest is everything. No harvest this year, no business next year. Everything is dependent upon the harvest. And Jesus talked in this agrarian economy so much about the harvest. I was going to introduce a couple other harvest type passages. And we just, there's no way, there, there are 25 or more of them just in the gospels. Of Jesus bringing attention to the harvest. He says in verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and other reaps. I sent you to reap that which you didn't labor. A few quick things even there that, friends, you've been sent for the harvest. Just as Jesus sent his disciples into the harvest and he makes this spiritual connection between the literal harvest of the grain that's in front of him, white for harvest, and to the spiritual dimension that Jesus is sending the the disciples into fields that are ripe for harvest. He would later, Jesus would say again in John 21 that he is sending us just as he's been sent, he's sending us for the harvest. And I want to remind you, just in case you thought it was something else that you've been sent here for. Let Jesus remind you this morning, seeing lost, seeking the lost, searching for the lost, helping them find Jesus. That's why you're here. So that lost people become safe people. That's why you're here. What matters most is the harvest. Everything is better in heaven than on earth. Everything's gonna be better. Why wouldn't Jesus just zap us on up to heaven? Like, like Elijah, we could just, just be translated up there to heaven at the moment of our salvation. Why, why, why are we still here? Worship's better than heaven. The worship was incredible this morning, was it not? The songs that we're singing. I, I, my heart is just, you know, so joyful. Just the, the worship culture, I hope that it's being created. I found a new worship album this past weekend, and I've been, if you pass by my house, I, I got the headphones on and the hands in the air, man. It, it, I, I'm becoming a little Pentecostal in, the, in my wood shop out there. It, it's, man, worship can be incredible, and your heart just enraptured in the things that God's doing. But you know what? Worship in heaven is so much better. Can you imagine worship in heaven with no sin, no distraction, nothing to kind of, you know, entangle us in those things? Worship from the angels. As Revelation shows them up there singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Can you imagine that joining that angelic choir singing, worship's going to be so much better in heaven. But not just the word, teaching's going to be better than he- in heaven. 
We live in a day where every famous pastor is one click away on a podcast. And I listen to a lot of them. And I love good Bible teaching. But can you imagine being in heaven? And hearing Paul teach? Or Luke? Or John? Or or Jesus himself? How incredible is that going to be? The teaching in heaven is going to be just... just Can you imagine the fellowship in heaven? Again, no... Nothing to taint, nothing to offend us. All that stuff's gone, sins removed, the, the fellowship in heaven, the, the marriage supper of the lamb that Revelation talks about. Can you imagine the food that's gonna be at that thing? And I believe literal food's gonna be there and it's gonna be incredible. Wings will be on the table somewhere, right? But the fellowship, the fellowship of just, you ever had one of those great conversations with a great friend and you walk away thinking, man, I love that dude. And they just bring so much joy. Can you imagine that exponentially, you know, times a thousand? That's what the fellowship's going to be like in heaven. Everything's going to be better in heaven. And yet we're still here. Why? Because the harvest is what matters the most. We're still here because there's lost people in Bozier. We're still here because there's lost people at your workplace. We're still here because there's lost people in Shreveport and Blanchard and Houghton. We're still here because there's lost people in your family. We're still here. Yes, heaven's going to be better. But Jesus has left us here. Your friends need Jesus, so stay. What matters most is the harvest. And the biggest hurdle that we'll face is not evangelism training, It's not knowing what to say and when to say it. Our biggest hurdle is distraction. Our biggest hurdle is going to be distraction. Even in this text, there's like 10 different distractions that that the disciples don't get. In verse 34, the disciples were so focused on cultural faux pas that they wanted and what they wanted for dinner. And Jesus had his eye on the spiritual realm. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus had a greater source of strength and satisfaction in the food that he was going to eat, no matter how good it was that they brought back from the town. Jesus explained to his disciples, his true satisfaction was to do the will of God the Father. His focus was not primarily on the work or the need or the strategy or the techniques or even the needy soul in front of him. First and foremost, his focus was on doing the will of the one who had sent him. But in contrast, we have an enemy named Satan who is the ultimate example of one who did not want the will of God, but asserted his will against God's will. And you can see that in Isaiah 14. If you want to go back and read that, how he went to war basically with God because he did not want the will of God. And yet you see this contrast in Jesus who said, listen, my food, my satisfaction comes from doing the will of the one who sent me. Our enemy, Satan, wants to do anything, wants us to focus on anything but the harvest. Focus on anything but on politics, sure. Climbing corporate ladders, being offended, building bigger barns, gaining power, social media, all these things lulling us to sleep in some sort of hypnotic state. 
while the people we love and the people that God has sent us to are eternally separated from God with no hope and God has sent us into their life and he's given us the message of the gospel and made us messengers or ministers of reconciliation and yet we focus on everything but this because you gotta remember, friends, we are at war but most of us aren't fighting. Ephesians 6, Paul warns the church in Ephesus this and this is familiar to you. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all that you would stand firm. He introduces a few things. Hey, church, I want you to be aware of something. Your battle's not against flesh and blood. I know your neighbor's driving you crazy. I know your sister's driving you crazy. I know the person across the street driving you crazy. Your coworker driving you crazy. I know all these people, and you, you think the battle is against them. It's not against them. The battle's not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers of darkness, the cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil, says there in verse 11, to stand against the schemes of the devil. Maybe you got the King James. It says the cunning devices. This is not open warfare. Devil doesn't come and show all his cards with all of his minions and demonic powers and line up against the angels of light in the church. No, he doesn't do that. No, he's, he's, he's subtle. Cunning devices, not open warfare. He approaches in darkness. Cunning, sneaky, making dark, dark things look like light things and light things look like dark things. He uses guerrilla warfare tactics. I found this definition of guerrilla warfare. Irregular warfare in which small groups of combatants use military tactics like ambushes and sabotage and hit and run to fight a larger and less mobile traditional military. Satan knows he's got no chance against the church. He wants to just come up against the church with King, you know, our King Jesus in front of us. He's got no chance, already been defeated on the, on the cross. So you know what he does? He just wants to pick us off one by one, family by family, kid by kid, marriage by marriage. He just wants to he, sabotage, to disable long enough to destroy from within is what sabotage is. To disable long enough to get in, sneak in. Destroy. Using the ammunition of comparison or status. Man, he uses so many things. Just wants to just sneak right on in there. Friends, the enemy is after you. Please do not think because you don't think of him that he's not thinking of you. Oh, he knows your weakness. He's moving everything within his power. The prince of the power of the air is what Jesus called him. He's he's using everything within his power to distract, to divide, and to destroy. That's his goal. Now, we don't have to be worried about that. Because even in this passage, this is what Paul says, hey, I want you to know a war is going out there, so I want you to dress for battle. Men, women, suit up. Holy Spirit has given you everything you need to fight this battle. Everything you need. 
We just don't suit up. We don't put the clothes on. There's a demonic distraction. We, we could spend a couple weeks just talking about that. Don't think the Bible is silent about that. It is very clear about the enemy that we face. Another distraction is complacency. Verse 35, Jesus is talking to the disciples. He says, don't you say yet four months and then comes the harvest? That was a saying that a lot of slothful people would use. Like we've planted the grain, we've prayed for the rain, and now there's nothing for us to do. We, just, we can party for four months because then comes the harvest. There's nothing for us to do. And Jesus saying, no, bro, you've missed it. Look at the fields. They're, they're overripe, white for harvest. feel like during this pandemic, this complacency has really gotten us. Convenience is difficult. They had to overcome a lot even to get to this place. A three-day journey. I feel like some of us are just like Eeyore. You know Eeyore? Anybody Eeyore? Woe is me. That looks so hard. Talk to my neighbor. Invite someone over, read the Bible, oh my, pray, for, pray for my spouse. We've worshiped the idol of convenience. I love that Jesus walked three days to talk to this woman. Three days to talk to this Samaritan woman. We won't put our neighbors and co-workers on a card and remember to pray for them. Racism, certainly here. You remember the disciples were the ones that asked Jesus if they could call down fire from heaven and burn up the Samaritans. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other with such a vitriol hatred. It's, it's nothing that, you, that I can even compare to today that you would kind of understand it. 700 years before this, Jewish people started shacking up with the en enemy, intermarrying, and they, it wasn't just that, it was that they added their gods to their places of worship and even altered their faith story. Wove the gods of the Samaritans and the Assyrians into this. So they worshiped God of the Bible, yes, but they also worshiped all these other gods. And they took the pure worship of seeking uh, connection with God at the temple and they distorted that in such a way that they, they added the practices of the other false gods. So they sacrificed babies to those gods and they had orgy worship and sex cults and, and then they made the claim that they, the Samaritans, were the most faithful to the God of the Bible. They had a 400-year blood feud with them. And yet Jesus overcame all of that to share with this woman at a well in the middle of the day the heart of God for her. Most of us have the heart of Jonah instead of the heart of Jesus. You remember Jonah? God, I don't want to share the gospel with those people because if I do, they're going to repent and then you're going to love them. 
I'd rather you just wipe them off the face of the earth. That's the heart of Jonah. But not the heart of Jesus. Jesus crucified on the cross and he's praying for the very ones. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Culture, the barrier of culture that Jesus overcame, this, this woman was a woman. It was forbidden for a good Jew to speak to a woman in public. Even your wife or daughter, if you were a good Jew and you saw your wife or daughter, you could not speak to them in public. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees, sometimes in, uh, in, in, in some of the commentaries, they're called the bruised-faced ones. If a good Pharisee saw a woman in public, even his wife or daughter, he would immediately close his eyes, which then would result in him tripping or running into buildings. And so they all walked around with these bruised faces because they didn't even want, they didn't want to look upon a woman. It was so disgraceful in, in, in their society. And Jesus just flips that script and he's like, you know what? He cares for this woman to such a degree that he spends time, his reputation in jeopardy. Even his own disciples are like, why is he talking to a woman? Like, shouldn't we go tell him that you can't do that? I think they were afraid of that whip. They would have just got it, you know, that whip that he made. We could list so many more distractions. The message is clear. Verse 35, you should write it down, you should memorize it. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Friends, get your eyes off the news. Get your eyes off the phone. Get your eyes off the Christmas list. Get your eyes on the harvest. Eyes on the harvest. Like you, I've been interested in the, as everyone in America, the election and all the things going on and the virus. I mean, there's so many things. I need to wake up every morning and remind myself of all these things so that I know in case any expert asks me about the virus, I can tell them what, what's going on. This week I've decided though, I was kind of in a little funk last week. I just decided this week, Jason and I talked, we met together and prayed several times and worship before the world this week, worship before the world. And so I just got up and I, I found the new worship album. I told you, man, I, just, I was just jamming, waking my family up, just, man, just did my soul so good this week just to, to worship the Lord before I did anything else. We have such a blessing with these incredible worship songs being written. I encourage you, church, before you open the news or look at social, fill your heart with worship. And if that means you gotta wake up 15 minutes early, wake up. If that means you gotta wake the house up, wake the house up. Get them in there with you. Let's worship together. Third and last point. Our greatest most motivation will be joy. Our greatest motiva- motivation will be joy. If it's anything else, it's inauthentic at best. Again, verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? I've read this passage at least 100 times in the last two weeks, just trying to read it over and over and over again. It wasn't until this morning that this phrase popped out to me. Come see a man who told me all I ever did. 
Remember, remember this was a despised woman who was living in shame, had had five husbands, was shacking up with the, with the sixth man, was trying to find her identity. Either she was abused. Some commentators think that she was infertile. And so after a man married her and she couldn't produce a child, they would, they would, they would divorce her. Regardless of what it is, she, she was living in shame. Even, even the, 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 she comes in the middle of the day so that she's not with the, the, the society women. They would all come in the early morning before it got real hot. Real hot. This is the desert. She comes by herself at noon. This is a woman who just lived with such shame, such a wound. And yet, what is her only talking point when she goes into the town? It's her testimony. Come see a man who knew all I ever did and loved me. From a wound source of shame, now to find healing through Jesus, the scar has become her only point of her message of the good news. It's incredible. Verse 39 shows us the effect of her testimony. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay and he stayed. This woman becomes the greatest evangelist in the Bible with no theological training, no evangelism seminars, no evangicube. Sorry, that was like a Jesus culture kind of joke. She'd been saved for five minutes. How in the world is this possible? Because of the joy of Jesus. When something radically impacts your life, don't you want to tell somebody about it? Isn't that what social media is? You just bragging on things that you found that are really cool. If I find a new restaurant in town, you're going to know about it. And I'm going to be there several times, diet or no diet. If it's a new restaurant and they got great food, I love to tell people about this new food place that I found. If I get a good deal on something, I love getting a good deal. You do not want to come with me shopping. I will barter with the guy at Best Buy. Oh, you want $100 for that? How about $50? $50? Ashley gets so embarrassed, she walks away. And most times they do. They'll sell it to you for $50. If you didn't know, you could barter at Best Buy. You can a great sermon, a great worship album, a cool app that I found. I love these things. I, I, if you're my friend, you know about these things. I'm just going to talk about it. This lady's life and heart are radically trans, transformed. She's got such joy. She becomes the greatest evangelist. Acts tells us that most of the entire city of Samaria was changed. The joy of Jesus is tied to following Jesus. I think at this point you're like, well, I'd like to have that joy. What does that joy look like? How, how can I have what's well, tied to following Jesus? Jesus assumed we'd be following him. Just as this woman saw the God, God's heart for the broken through Jesus extended to her, that she takes and extends her heart for the broken 
and extends it to them. And they responded in such a great way, but I believe even if they didn't respond this way, she would still be full of joy because the joy is tied to following Jesus and not the results. The joy is in obedience to Jesus. A few weeks ago, we talked about John the Baptist's ministry that he had worked to build for several years, remember? And then Jesus showed up on the scene and he's baptized and disciples come to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, Jesus is a disciple and all, all of our disciples are leaving and going to Jesus. And John the Baptist says, oh, great. My joy is made complete by seeing this. How could someone put all their energy and all their effort and all their life into this one moment and this one ministry and yet it be taken away from them and they respond, oh, man, my joy is complete. Of course, James says that we should be full of joy when we walk through trials of many kinds. The pandemic is included in the many kinds. We should be joyful people, even in the hardest of situations. Why? Because of what God is going to do through these things. I was reading this week, and we probably don't have time for this. I'm going I'm to share it anyway. I was reading this week in 2 Corinthians. I literally couldn't get past this one verse. There's a famine in Jerusalem, right? And Paul has taken up an offering from the church at Corinth, but he couldn't, as he's saying, hey, get the, get, the, get the offering ready so when I get there, I don't have to give speeches about it and do fundraising. Get the offering ready so I get there. We're going to send it to, to Jerusalem. They're, they're in a famine. While he's talking about that, he can't help but brag on the church in Macedonia. Listen to this. This, this, this should just, this blew my mind. And Second Corinthians, we, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. That is an equation that does not work in my mind. A severe test of affliction plus extreme poverty equals an abundance of joy and a sacrificial generosity. He says they gave according to their means, but even greater than their means. The Macedonian church was a poor church. If you were wealthy in this day, you had, you had three, sometimes four meals a day, snacks in between. The poorest of the poor, those that were in the famine, would do good to have a meal a day. Well, Macedonia wasn't much better than that. They maybe had a meal and a snack. And yet it says they gave, they gave up their meal, they gave according to their own means, but even greater beyond their own means. Like the widow at Zarephath, when Elijah asks, hey, I need, you to, I need you to give me a little, just a cake and something to drink. I, I, I've got just a little bit left. Elijah, and I, I was actually just gonna make a meal for me and my son and then we were just gonna die together. Super positive. It'd be great if she's your mom. Hey, let's just have this little cornbread and then we're both gonna die. Elijah's so bold. He says, okay, well, instead of making you and your son, just make that for me. And you know what happened? God just continued to supply. Just refill it. Why? Because this is the supernatural work of the spirit. This is kingdom economics. How in the world could these people in a severe test of affliction themselves 
they got five bucks to their name and it takes $4 to eat on. So they're gonna give according to their means, which is the $1 that they would have left over. But you know what? Let's just give them all the five, even beyond their means. The passage says with an abundance of joy, because friends, listen, if you get nothing else, and this is me preaching to me, Luke, if you get nothing else, the joy comes in following Jesus. The joy is in Jesus. And he's gonna ask you to do things that look ridiculous, crazy to the world, to go through Samaria to find a woman out of well. He's gonna ask you to do some things that you're gonna be misunderstood and people aren't gonna really understand. They're not gonna comprehend even your own family. What are you talking about? Ministry and giving money to the Christmas missions? What are you, that's, that, use that stuff for other things. Then they're not gonna understand. But we don't live for them. We find our greatest joy in Jesus. And when we are really filled with joy, And when we realize that Jesus is that source of living water, we remind ourselves of that. We're gonna have joy too. Then evangelism is not something that's forced. We don't have to to learn all the tricks of the trade and have a, you know, have a evangelism coin that shows the guy. No, it's just overflowing. We've got so much joy in Jesus. Tell me about the hope that you have in such a difficult time. Is it that the virus hasn't impacted? Oh no, it's impacted me a lot. I've just found I have greater joy in Jesus that nothing can take away. Listen, the pandemic has stunned us all. What is that phrase that Mike Tyson says all the time? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. We've been punched in the mouth, church. We've all had to find some way to deal with this pandemic, this election, all these things on an emotional level. And some have turned to binge watching shows and others seeking comfort and convenience or medication or porn or drinking or whatever it is. We just want to ease the pain. And yet in doing that, we've turned away from the only source of joy that there really is. That can bring real healing to our wounds and real satisfaction to our souls. And that's Jesus. That's walking with him and helping others find him. That's what we see in this woman at the well who came at noon when no one would hang out with her, had a divine appointment with Jesus. And not only is she changed, but the entire town is changed because of such testimony. I feel like our response today is really in two parts. Some of you just need to come to him today. You've been playing religious games for a long time. You feel like you're on the outside looking in. You need to come to Jesus. Just lay all your stuff at his feet. All that you're grieving, all that you're striving for. To find joy in your salvation again, maybe for the first time. Remember when David got right with God after he had hidden the affair with Bathsheba and the killing of her husband, Nathan the prophet addresses his sin. He cries out in Psalms 51, Lord, return to me the joy of my salvation. Some of us have been drinking from wells that ultimately just run bitter. And the call is just to return to Jesus, to find your joy in him for the first time or for the first time in a really long time. I read this book by John Eldridge called Taking Your Life Back. He's got this little prayer in there 
This one minute pause, he calls, it, calls, he calls it that you do several times a day. And it's just pausing for a second in this little prayer. God, I give all of these people and all of these problems back to you. It has done so good for my own heart. Such an act of worship. Got all these problems. Man, I got a bunch of them. And Monday morning, I'm, they're just going to be flooding in. I, I got all these problems. I got all these people that are mad at me or offended by me or that I offended. I just... Lord, I just need to submit them at your feet once again. I, I, need you to, I need your wisdom to tell me how to handle all these things. But just for now, I'm just going to submit those to your feet. For others of us walking with Jesus, it's time to focus. It's time to suit up for battle. It's time to realize the enemy's out there. He's coming after our kids, coming after our marriages, coming after our businesses, coming after our friendships. He's coming after our church. He's coming. He's here. Remember sabotage. Guerrilla warfare. He's already, he's just snuck in. When we, when we were binge watching something, he snuck in. Our eyes have not been on alert. No one's been manning the watchtower. And he's here. I love Ephesians 6.15. He's talking about the different parts of the, the spiritual armor. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Readiness given by the gospel of peace. It's what we go forward with today. I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna sing here in a minute. The band can go ahead and come up. And as I'm praying, I want you to just do a little spiritual walk inventory right where you're at. And I'm not gonna ask you to turn this to me or say anything to me, but just right where you're at. If you could just walk in reality for a second. There's some, there's some real things in your life that need to be repented of this morning and you just need to, you need to put those things at the feet of Jesus. Could be a besetting sin, could be just your flippancy and complacency. Could be that you hadn't even thought about the harvest in a really long time. You just need to repent of those things. I encourage you just to make a list that only you're gonna see. Sometimes it just helps just to write it down. Lord, I'm just gonna, I'm giving this to you. Lord, my free time, what I do when no one's watching, what I look at on computer screens. As Job said, I'm gonna make a covenant with my eyes once again to honor you, God, and all these things. What you're doing with your money and your relationships. Maybe in points of stress, you've said some things that have really damaged some relationships and, and you gotta go back to them. And the relationship might not ever be restored. You're, you're, not, you're not in control of that, but you've got to go back to them and you've got to offer forgiveness with real humility. Some things we've probably got to apologize to our kids for. We've been leading them in the right way. Maybe our spouse, we've got to apologize to them. Maybe it's a neighbor that we've ignored. We just got to repent. The longer you walk with God, the more you understand how beautiful the word repentance is. The more aware of your own shortcomings, lay those things at the feet of Jesus. Some of you, your prayer today is, God, help me focus on what's most important. Help me walk out of here with 
determination that I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep my eyes on the things that need attention. Walking with you, worshiping before we involve ourselves in the world. God, we love you. Thank you for today. Thank you for this, your word. God, your heart for us. You so love the world. You so loved us. I pray we would respond. I pray that we would sing with real gratitudes of changed hearts. And I pray in the fullness of joy that we would leave here in a minute with our shoes fit with the readiness of the gospel of peace.